I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Fred Gutenberg, I want to welcome you to The Literary Life. Uh, your new book, Find the Helpers, What 9-11 and Parkland Taught Me About Recovery, Purpose, and Hope, has been an inspiration to people all over the country. And since you and I have become uh, friends and conversants, and, and we've been talking about your book over the course of time, and um, you've interacted with so many people at the bookshop, you've also become an inspiration for all of us at the bookstore. Too. And to see people react to this book is really, really heartening. So welcome. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that introduction. And um, coming from you who uh, do a lot with a lot of books, that means a lot. So thank you. Well, you know, when reading your book and in talking to you and, you know, I knew you as a news personality, obviously, before I knew you personally, I'm really, really amazed at what you've been able to both overcome and achieve. And I was, you know, all throughout your book are these amazing quotes by all of these helpers in your life who also became friends of yours. And, and they characterize you in certain ways. And one in particular really just struck me. It's the one in the introduction by Bradley Whitford, who writes, Fred Gutenberg is one of those rarest of human beings who, as they endure the unimaginable, have the strength to see beyond their own suffering. 
they hear a call to action to do whatever they can to alleviate that suffering in others, and in doing so, hold this country up to its spectacular, unfulfilled promise. They understand that politics is the way we create our moral vision. They know that despair is a luxury the future cannot afford, and that action is the antidote to despair. What an amazing lesson for all of us that you have, and it really resonated with me, you have the strength to see beyond your own suffering. Fred, where does that come from? Well, first, um, when Bradley wrote that, he blew me away. He is just a tremendous human being. Um, and to answer your question, I don't know if I would call it miraculous strength. I don't know what I would call it. Maybe it is my mom and dad were two really strong people. I, my siblings are all pillars of strength. Jane and my son are strong. Jamie, exceptionally strong. I don't see myself honestly that way. I just see myself as a dad uh, who, as a parent, we always react to what happens to our kids. And I will never be able to think of Jamie in the past tense. And thank God my son is still with us. I will always be reacting to what happened to them that day. Um, I don't know another way to go forward. I also think that I'll never forgive myself for not having put my voice into this conversation on gun safety when it was happening to other people's kids. It's a guilt that I carry with me every single day. And so because it happened to me, and yes, I know what my voice means and I understand how it resonates. I'm not gonna stop until we get this done. When I stand with the president who signed gun safety legislation into law, I will turn to a pile of mush. <laughs> but until then, there's work to do. Very much so. You know, when you talk about the strength, I, I also was struck, and I didn't really know the story of your brother Michael. And you had, you basically had back-to-back -back horrible tragedies. And, and, and Michael had that kind of strength too, didn't he? I mean, Michael was yeah. a first responder, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Michael, if you would. No, listen, my brother, um, an amazing person, you know, when we talk about strength, when, when there's tragedy happening, my brother was one of those people wired to be the one running in. I'd be the one running away, you know? That's, I, I wouldn't know how to respond if I came across a building burning with two planes in it. But my brother's response is, I got to get because there's people who need me. And that's what he would do. He just has this, he had this amazing strength to take care of people, to do what was right. And, and to put the needs of others ahead of his own. What's truly, though, I think more amazing about my brother than his strength, and maybe this is a sign of his strength, is how little desire he had for anyone to ever look at him 
as special for doing what he did. He never thought of himself that way. Um, and in fact, he, in his adult life, got very, I would say, frustrated by the fact that 9-11 was such a defining moment because he was more proud of the work that he did training, teaching, and during other first responders. That's what he right. wanted to be remembered as and by. Um, so, but maybe it is a testament to really strong people that they do what they do because of how important it is for them to do it, but not because they need accolades or pats on the shoulder or anything else in return. And that was my brother, um, the most humble person in the world. But he would have run into a burning World Trade Center again if called to do so. He, he got involved in medicine for all the right reasons, to be yeah. someone to help, which is... And, and I think you have a lot of those same characteristics. I think what drives you is this... You're, you're, you're in, in essence, you're running into a burning building, which is, you know, our problem with guns and all of that. I, I, you know, your book is so wonderfully constructed because it shows the evolution that you went through as well. So, so talk a little bit about Jamie, and so people can really understand the person behind, you know, yeah, behind who you are. Well, you know, I mean, that night. When I was asked, I got there and I was asked to speak. And it was just not something I had prepared for because it happened when I got there. And I went on the stage and it was that night where it hit me. My daughter is gone because of gun violence. My community has been rocked because of gun violence. And it was standing there that night that I became Jamie's voice. You know, I, 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 the 24 hours before that, honestly, the world was just spent. It wasn't even clear to me what the hell I was in the middle of until I stood there that night and saw everyone holding candles, everyone crying. And, and I realized I'm now speaking as Jamie's voice. Um, listen, my daughter, you talk about strength. My little 14-year-old girl understood right from wrong in the way that too many adults don't get. My 14-year-old girl, who was a petite little thing, um, would go to school and put herself in the middle of a bully bullying somebody else to make it stop because she hated bullies. And my little 14-year-old girl went out of her way to volunteer for kids with special needs, but also to make sure that all of the kids in school were including those kids in everything that they were doing because it was the right thing to do. And that's who it was. You know, I tell the story in the book, but I really think it gets to who she was about what happened the night in sixth grade when she came home and told me about a bullying incident that she stopped. And she started describing how big the bully was. And I turned into dad at that moment. I'm like, you can't do that anymore. You know, this isn't like elementary school. You're going to come home with black eyes. And she looked at me completely serious. And she just said, you underestimate me because of my size, was her response to me. <laughs> and I said, oh, so you think you're tough? She said, yes. So I pushed her. 
And she pushed me back, pushed her again. And she pushed me back. The third time when I pushed her, I got what became known in my house as the kangaroo kick because my daughter had these fast, fierce dancer's legs and she was going to end it right there. And she did. And when I got myself collected, um, I just put my hand on her shoulder and I said, I should be really annoyed at you right now. But if anyone ever does that to you again, that's what you do. <laughs> that's, a great, that's, a, that's a great story. And she was an amazing dancer as well, right? Just amazing. The best. She, she loved to dance. And, um, you know, it didn't matter how tired she was. It didn't matter what was going on. She, she would go to school and then she'd go to do all of her dance training competitively for hours. And she'd come home, she'd sprawl on the couch all tired. And two minutes later, you'd look at her, she'd be dancing around the house because it's what she loved to do. Um, you know, out of dance, I'll never forget the, the, her dance instructor once asked all the kids to come up with um, a slogan that motivates them. And my daughter went online and found one that has since become my mantra, which was dreams and dedication are a powerful combination. And that was the slogan that motivated her. It's, it's now mine. Um, and so when we talk about strength, it's not um, hyperbole for me to always say, I have the two strongest people standing on my shoulders at all times you know, my brother and my sister. And, um, but Jamie was just a really special person who teaches me every single day still how to go forward. Uh, talk to me a little bit, if you would, about the helpers who have helped you get through all of this as well, which is the subject of your book. And I'm, particularly, I'm particularly struck by your relationship with President Biden, which is yeah. really interesting. I'd love well, to you know, and that's the one that everybody loves to look to, right? But, but, but there are other too. Yeah, and, and, and it's like, I think the, I, so I have to tell you how I came to the theme, because there's another helper in this book who I think probably has influenced me more than anybody. Um, my original intention of this book had nothing to do with helpers. My original intention was to write my story of being a part of two national tragedies and how this country responded differently to both. And someone who I trust a lot, I shared what I really wrote and he handed it back to me and he said, you're not done. And I said, what do you mean I'm not done? He goes, everyone knows your story. He goes, but you know what? You have all these amazing stories in your book about other people. I want to know more about that. There's something more there. And so I went back for about the next six months and I started rewriting this book. And, and I guess it's a good thing I did. And so over the course of that six months, a lot of things happened, like the presidential election, thing pulled out of the State of the Union and arrested, things that wouldn't have happened if I stopped writing. So, um, but very early in the book, um, in my original dream, I did a quick telling of this lady who on 9-11 went to where the triage was set up 
And this is important because my brother, we had assumed by mid-afternoon that he was buried at the World Trade Center. We hadn't heard from him all day. We know, because we know him, where he was. And we started to feel the worst possible case scenario. And so what happened was later that afternoon, um, he's at this, they set up a garage. They moved it from where the World Trade Center was, originally to four blocks away. Then they became concerned with gas explosions. So they ended up moving it to Battery Park. And this lady went to Battery Park with a pen and paper and just said, I'm sure you have loved ones to all the first responders. Just give me a name and a phone number. And she called my parents and said, your loved one is alive. He will call you when he can. And that was the first sign of life we had from my brother that day. I think about this lady every single day. She helped my family in the most amazing way, and I've never met her. And when I went back and started rewriting the book and really kind of telling more of what happened with her, it, it actually changed me because I started to realize my entire life really is less about me and more about the amazing people that have been a part of it, that have helped me, that have carried me, whether it was through a job or through work or through relationships or through family stuff. And so it was shortly after really built up on that story that this helper scene really started to evolve for me. Um, and there are so many people, whether it's the best friend who carried me through the first couple of weeks after Jamie was killed, or a friend who went back to the school that day to identify her. Um, but then, yes, there have been others. We, we've talked about Bradley Workford before, and it was at an event that I met him for the first time. Didn't know I was going to meet him. And it happened, and I was, just so you know, at a low point, I was really actually feeling as if nobody was, as if it was possible people really weren't paying attention. And I was getting down. And here I am in California, and I run into Bradley Whitford, and he's wearing his orange ribbons for Jamie Pitt. He had no idea he was going to meet me. And it made me realize that day how far this is carrying and how many people are paying attention. Now, you asked me about our president. Um, and he did. He reached out originally about days after Jamie was killed. And we had a very long conversation on the phone, close to an hour. He was on his way from New York to Virginia on a train um, for a Bo Biden Foundation event. And it was like talking to your uncle. It was just this amazing personal conversation. And towards the end of it, he asked me what my plan was. And I really know completely what my plan was yet, other than being able to tell him, I want to break the effing gun lobby. And that got to this whole conversation on mission and purpose that has guided me since. A few weeks later, he invited me and one of the other Parkland dads to an in-person event that he was having at Palm Beach. Um, and we went to this house for this fundraiser there had to be almost 300 people there. Uh, it was, you know, a very big home. And he comes in, he's shaking everybody's hands, he's greeting everybody, and then he sees me and the other dad. And he motions to his, he points, you know, to kind of a room. 
So now we're going to go in there privately with him. And, and candidly, with all the people waiting there, I just assumed we'd have like a two-minute handshake and that would be it. And I was okay with that. He asked us to sit down. 20 minutes later, I reminded him about the room full of people. <laughs> and he just said, this is more important. Wow. Just like that. And we probably spent about another 20 minutes. But he started talking to us about things that no one else had brought to my attention. And I think the most important lesson anyone has given to me yet going through grief, which is we all grieve differently. No two people will grieve the same way. And he wanted me to know that because as a family, he wanted to make sure my family did not suffer the fate of too many other families after grief, which is they fall apart. And by giving me this advice and letting me know this, he wanted me to have a plan. And he was right. And for I'll be forever grateful to the man. Well, it's it's great to hear. I mean, he's he's legendary for his empathy, and and to hear it confirmed by you is so heartening. Why don't you talk about your your not for profit for a little bit? Just exactly what that is. Yeah. So well, so our driven for Jamie actually started um, in my mind by all the kids that Jamie dances with. Um, the night she was killed, they all went to the dance studio, started making orange ribbons because it happened to have been Jamie's favorite color. And the next day they came over all wearing their orange ribbons and they went up to Jamie's room. They started taking photos that went viral. And by the next day, the dance community around the country and even in many cases around the world took notice of the postings of these kids with their orange ribbons dedicated the rest of their dance year to Jamie. And at all the competitions, we're gonna be wearing orange ribbons. Broadway took notice and shows like The Lion King and Hamilton also dedicated by wearing orange ribbons at their performances. So at Jamie's funeral, um, I talked about this orange ribbons movement. I didn't really know yet what it meant, but I knew there was this movement to honor my daughter and to make sure we never forget who she was, but also to deal with gun violence. After that, I didn't think too much about it. We were kind of busy trying to put ourselves back together. And about three weeks later, I was in a Home Depot. And um, doing my shopping at Home Depot, as I often do, and someone came up to me and asked me what the R Driven was for. And when I told them, they said, you know, that's the color of the gun safe movement. And I had no idea. And I just couldn't ignore that coincidence. And so I went home and I told my wife. And that day we decided um, that we were going to formalize this and start our foundation, Orange Ribbons for Jamie. My original intent was to simply make orange the orange ribbon, the symbol of the movement. There was a color, I wanted there to be a symbol. And that we've done. But ultimately what Orange Ribbons for Jamie has evolved into is about being about Jamie, being about what mattered to her in life. So we give back to organizations that do anti-bullying programs or for things for kids with special needs. But what I'm really most proud of 
is the scholarship program that we've started um, called the Kids of All Ability Scholarship. And we give scholarships to kids who are going to go into a major where you're going to do, where you're going to help others, a doctor, a therapist, or, you know, something along those lines, but you have to have community service. Or we give kids scholarships to kids who are going to go into dance, but they have to have community service. And the reason for those things, because that's the kind of life Jamie would have had. And Jamie had to be service. The third bucket is for kids with a documented special need. Usually scholarships aren't available for those kids, but they're going to go on to some post high school education as well. And so we make sure that we find really special kids in all three categories and we give out scholarships. That's amazing. And I found it, you know, I found it really special that when, when I read about the New York City Ballet dancing with the orange ribbons as well, you know, hearkening back to Jamie's dancing. I mean, that must, <laughs> I can only imagine what that was like. It, it, it was heartwarming and also horribly, you know, again, because of the timing, it was heartbreaking. Um, well, Fred, the other thing that I am just blown away by is every time I see you on television, whether it's in front of a congressional committee, whether it's getting thrown out of a State of the Union speech <laughs> or whatever, you are so articulate and such an amazing advocate for uh, gun safety. After Parkland, after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High, after what we've just seen just recently in Atlanta and in Boulder and every other day there's something going on. What is the state of play right now? Where are we right now? in this fight that you've been engaged in? Listen, we're closer than we've ever been to actually as a nation passing true common sense gun safety measures. We're also closer than we've ever been to permanently blowing it. Um, and what I mean by that is it has to be this year. It can't, it can't wait till next year, because you go to another election year. And there's no guarantee that the House and the Senate will stay in the same makeup that they are. And you have the reality of courts that became tilted further right. So it has to be this year. We're closer than we've ever been. But if we don't do it this year, we're also closer than we've ever been to permanently blowing it. And so I do believe we're going to get it done. Um, this, the president is soon to announce some executive actions. And what you're going to find out as a country after the executive actions is we will take actions on gun safety and this country will wake up the next day and realize, okay, I'm a legal lawful gun owner. It really didn't affect me, um, but it will save lives. And we're going to get legislation done this year. It may require that we do away with the filibuster. Um, but if that's the case, then so be it. Um, because we currently have a party that is refusing to meet the will of the American people. Um, and, and so we should go forward without them. Well, I, I've, been, I've been very heartened that that President Biden is looking at bipartisanship a little differently than most people do. He's not looking at it 
in terms of needing to get necessarily Republican lawmakers on his side. He's looking at what the general public wants. And the general public yes. is really very, Republicans as well as Democrats are in favor of gun safety laws. Um, well, here are some facts. Yeah. Over 90% support backpacks. The last two elections have turned, okay, the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And gun safety is a large reason as to why. And, and so it is a bipartisan thing. You have Republican mayors and governors across this country who are actually doing more with gun safety, who want it because they're the closest to the citizens. So it is a bipartisan act to deal with gun safety, even if some of those folks on the other side who sit in the Senate say, not on my time. Um, they're just not being, they're being partisan. Joe Biden is trying to represent all the people. Are background checks the first thing to come? Do you think? No doubt. It, it, it's, you know, the, there's no question that that will be the most likely to get a, um, through the Senate. That's really what everything is about right now. And here's the thing. I'm, while I think probably not the most important of the laws to pass, because the reality is um, you already have 400 million weapons on the streets. So, you know, passing bad checks on new purchases is probably not going to be the way to save the most lives, but it will save some. What it does do, though, is it changes the conversation. The way gun safety has always been looked at in this country, it's as it is something that you can't get done. That's always been the belief. It just, it's never going to happen in the United States of America. So if you change the conversation by actually passing a very consequential bill, you no longer have to um, go against this idea that it'll just never happen. Now it's only a question going forward of what more you can do. And so it's really important that something, not just, not anything, but something consequential gets passed and background checks will be that bill. I, I hope the this desire to make this a 60 vote bill um, doesn't cause legislators to just pass anything. Passing anything is no help. Passing something consequential is what they need to do. So there's where the filibuster, ending the filibuster comes in. Yeah. I believe. And also keeping Joe Manchin uh, in line. <laughs> have you been, have you had conversations with him? Um, I am going to be in DC next week and it is the intent. Oh, that would, that's, I think, I think if anyone can do it, I think you, you have a good shot at it. We're, we're working on getting it on the schedule. So I'll let you know. You mentioned 400 million guns. We are exponentially have more guns than just about any other place in the world. And I think you hit it before when you said that gun owners, the, the, the legal gun owners um, who might be truly hunters and whatever, they will wake up and find out that people who want gun safety are not going to take their guns away, you know, which is, you know, the confiscation of guns is used as a, as a kind of a boogeyman to frighten yeah. so many people.
So let me switch gears just for a second and say that, you know, as a South Floridian who actually grew up down here and went to high school here as well, what, what was it in the water of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High to create such a group of activists, particularly the kids, you know, what was it? You know, the David Hoggs and all the others. Yeah. Our kids across this country have maybe been more amazing than we realized. I, um, listen, I knew all these kids before February 14th. And I thought like everyone else, they were a bunch of knuckleheads, to be honest. Um, <laughs> you know, my son and daughter included. And, and I think that because everybody does this, you know, on the phone, everything's, right. I, I just figured they, that none of these children knew how to talk. And I think what February 14th showed us is we were wrong. That not only do they know how to communicate, but this thing that, that we worried about destroying them was actually their weapon. That this gave them a special power that we adults didn't fully understand. The ability to organize, strategize, coordinate in, in a speed and in a way that we couldn't keep up with. Um, and what it did is this combined with the ability that they clearly always had gave them a strength that we just didn't see coming. Um, but, but let me tell you something. I've met these, I know the kids from Parkland. I've met kids from around this country who are also truly impressive. And not only do they know how to communicate, they know what they want. They're fierce in asking for it. Um, sometimes because they're kids, you have to teach them and coach them a little bit to, you know, you know, how to do this appropriately, <laughs> but, but they're kids, you know, and I am so excited for these kids to all go off to college, learn the skills they need to learn and become leaders because our next generation of leaders in this country is actually pretty amazing. And we have a lot to look forward to. And I think that's what Parkland showed us. Um, I'll never underestimate these kids again. Is that what you're most hopeful about when you look to the future? You know, I, I had a, uh, an interview yesterday actually with one of these groups that have been started by kids um, called Voters of Tomorrow. And we talked about this and I am, you know, we're gonna have to get through some really, I think some challenging times politically but these kids are coming and they will be the legislators of tomorrow. And they have a really different um, idea about what America and Americans are. Um, really democratic ideas, really inclusive ideas. And they wanna fight for their safety, for the safety of kids they may bring into the world. They wanna fight for the planet because they have to spend a lot more time on this earth than we will and their kids will have to. So they, they really do um, want to lead. And I am, I am so hopeful because they have morals and values that should 
give us all pride. Um, I think we did okay with these kids and I'm looking forward to it. What can the average person do to amplify this message of yours? It, it's a glossary of, of organizations that I would call helper organizations. So whatever you're going through, it's different organizations that you can look to. And a lot of them have a focus on kindness and getting through grief, but it is, it, that's what it is. And there's thousands of organizations like it. We just wanted to highlight some so people could know no matter what you're going through, a Google search is all you need to start finding support. Um, and my, my main message of, and the reason for putting that there is I do, I want everyone to know, no matter what you go through, no matter what happens to you, there's a path forward. There's a way to keep going and that you shouldn't try to do it alone. You know, reach out to others, those you know, maybe those who you don't know. You know, if you're not sure amongst those you know who to reach out to, you have the glossary, you can reach out to a place of worship, a local community center, but don't go through it alone. Your helpers are there for you. And, and, and I really try when I talk to people to always say, always know who helpers are. And if you're not sure, now's a good time to make sure you get connected to people. And if you're in a position to be a helper, be an organization that can help others, make sure you do so. Yes, I would tell people if you're in that position, we have a responsibility and, and, and do it. Um, especially in a time like this that we're going through now with COVID, there's no better time to make sure you're available for others than now. Fred, thank you for you. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for this remarkable book, Find the Helpers. You can get it at bookstores everywhere. Go after them. Keep doing it. All right, Fred? Thank you. Thank you. Take care. I will do it, order it, order it from us, and we'll make sure that Fred does that. Fred, you know, Godspeed. I wish you the best. And, you know, I hope, you know, with COVID lightening up a little bit, I can't wait to be able to break some bread with you and talk more about all of this. Listen, my friend, I've had my shots. So you tell me when. All right. Let's do it. Well.